Ladies and gentlemen, how do? Welcome to episode two of Grand Bag's Funeral. This month, we are discussing four war movies. Uh, we have uh, grown up with these films and recently revisited them. Well, certain members of the podcast have. I couldn't stomach one of them, that's for sure. Um, so we're going to start off um, talking about uh, the first film that we've chosen, which is The Dirty Dozen. But first of all, let me introduce um, ourselves. My name is Simon. I am based here in Oxfordshire. I do a bit of writing, and I'm also on the Cinema Under the Stairs podcast, which is listened to worldwide by about at least 60 people. Uh, John Harmon, he teaches uh, film and media. Say hello. Hello. Hello from the fjords. And our esteemed researcher and a lifelong friend of us both, Matt Riches, is joining us for this episode and hopefully for many, many more. Say hi, Matt. Hi, Matt. Very good. <laughs> we're not actually talking about hi, Matt, though, which, um, which is far too highbrow for what we're about to talk about. We're going to talk about, first of all, The Dirty Dozen, okay? Made in 1967, directed by Robert Aldrich, um, famed for Kiss Me Deadly, Vera Cruz, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, Flight of the Phoenix, and The Longest Yard. Based on the book by E.M. Nathanson, and uh, that book is supposedly based on a true story. But the true story that Nathanson was told was based on something his mate, the, own, the one and only Russ Mayer, told him. Um, so the jury is out whether it's true at all. So does that mean there were a load of women with improbably large breasts going behind the lines? Quite possibly, yeah. Um, and, that's, and that's why the, the group was known as the Filthy 13. Filthy 13, exactly. There is the yeah. Filthy 13. But they weren't the Filthy 13 um, a group of parachute um, airborne squadron. Have to ask Ross Mayer. Very good. He's gone full way already, isn't he? Whee! Right. Okay. He's fired. Um, so, John, when was the first time that you remember? Not the first time you saw it, because you probably wouldn't remember, because it's one of those films which is stitched into fabric, the DNA of movie fans everywhere, whether you even like it or not. When was the first time you remember seeing the Dirty Dozen? Well, this is going to be a terrible confession, but actually watching it for this is the first time I've seen it. Um, um, you're you, you fucking what, when? So I realised, like, whilst watching it, I've seen snippets of it, but when I was a kid and tried to watch it, I would always watch it with my grandparents, and my grandfather would switch it off because he, he was in World War II and he didn't like watching World War II films. So I realised that I'd seen boring. snippets of it, but I'd never actually seen the whole thing. Yeah, he's like, oh, that's boring, nothing like the real stuff. <laughs> So, yeah, I, I, <laughs> he probably got a point. <laughs> I never met Lee Marvin once. Oh wow! Okay, that is that is a confession. Well, thanks for your honesty. Um, and uh, what did you think of it? As you've only just recently seen it. Well, it, it was mad because because I thought it was going to be like the epitome men on a mission thing, and actually, not a lot happens for quite a lot of, a, a lot of the time. Yeah, it takes a while to to kick off. Yeah. And, well, we'll, uh, Go, we'll so, go. We'll go back to that. We'll go back to that because um. So it, 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 it was slightly different to to what I expect. I realised that I've probably only seen like the last thirty minutes. So yeah, I I liked it. Okay. Uh, and although it has some odd moments in it, for sure. And we will definitely be dealing with them. And I think we'll be dealing with the odd moments of these films. Um, 
yeah, as, as the main thesis, I'm sure. Matt, buddy, when was the first time you saw the Dirty Dozen? Now, I know, I know that you've seen Dirty Dozen Next Mission about 20 times, although you probably can't remember it. And just for the listeners, Matt has the worst fucking memory of anyone I've ever met. In fact, he may well have dementia. Have I genuinely seen Dirty Dozen Next Mission? Dirty Dozen really Next Mission, unbelievable. Dirty Dozen Next Mission, you used to hire out from, what was the video shop in Wroxham? I have not. There is no way I've seen Dirty Dozen The Deadly Mission. No, Dirty Dozen Next Mission. You've seen it oh, so many bloody times. You'd come back and you go, oh, I've got Dirty Dozen Next Mission out. And I'm just like, fucking great, brilliant. I can't believe you don't remember it. It's amazing. It's like a parallel universe of memory. Anyway, Matt, do you remember the first time you saw Dirty Dozen? I must have been 11 or 12, maybe. Mm-hmm. I think I really enjoyed it because when I was watching it back for this, um, lots of it came back. This, that, that's probably the first time I've seen it since then. Um, apparently, I was spending the rest of my time watching The Next Mission, which I don't recall at all. Um, it's just insane. But loads of this came back to me. I, I think a bit like... John, I was a bit surprised by the ratio of build-up to the actual point of it. Just regarding that, um, you are talking about a film made in 1967, though, right? Mm. And films made in, um, you know, big budget movies back then, they're at least two and a half hours long pretty much every time. So you have the introduction of characters, which The Dirty Dozen does amazingly. Lee Marvin comes in, he's 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 told by he's told by Ernest Borgnine what's what's got to happen. He goes to the stockade and we meet each of the dirty dozen. Well, we don't. We meet the main stars. We don't meet all of the dirty dozen, which is one of the one of my bane's of it. Really, is that um, it might as well be called the Dirty Six because six of them you just you you barely even notice when they get killed. Um, so you have that you have that introduction. Then you have the normal training session, hijinks you know, a few laughs and then you have them being cheating bastards in a training mission and then they're sent into battle. A shopping in of seven prostitutes. You mustn't forget that bit. Oh no, no, you must forget that. Yeah. And that was a hell of a hell of an opening just saying, oh, right, we'll open up with hanging the geezer. <laughs> yeah. Really, really dark. Yeah, and, just, and so, just open like that. I mean, the last time I saw it, apart from I mean I watched it the other night before um, just in research for this, but I watch it at least once a year, I'm sure. And it's not because I sit down to watch it. It's because it's always fucking on. And the last time was not this Christmas, previous Christmas. I got up early um, Christmas morning, although everyone was ill. And so it wasn't just like, you know, the kids weren't up at five going, oh, where's my fucking PlayStation? So I got up and I stuck the telly on of ITV4, I imagine. I was going to say it must have been on ITV4. Yeah. 11 a.m., a hanging Christmas day, the dirty dozen. I'm like, oh, what a result. But yeah, it's really grim beginning. It's like, please, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's like, okay, that's a bit dark. And um, it's a really callous film in general, I think. But the weird thing about it is for me is that. It has this real mean streak to it, like a lot. I mean, Robert Aldrich is, is, is very much into that in a lot of his films. And then all of a sudden it turns into a carry-on movie on the training camp. You know, George Kennedy's on the side of the Jeep 
gets bounced off and he falls on his ass and it's like Kenneth Williams falling and he goes bounce a holiday on the buses goes abroad exactly and then you know 20 minutes later they're burning people alive John <laughs> your thoughts it's got everything yeah no no I mean it, it, it was it, it was like it started off with this sort of very sort of gritty yeah like depressing kind of opening as you say it, it went into it ain't half hot mum mm. for a bit like I, I'd forgotten kind of Lee Marvin is a bit of a weird actor mm. in the way he and you you can kind of tell throughout this he's he, he's a bit pissed off that this it, almost like this doesn't represent his memory of the war yeah and he's all, and, and well you can tell you you know full well he's doing a movie like that for the money we might talk about this as we get further through but I think some of the lead actors in all of these films that we're going to talk about feel a little bit like yeah. they are definitely doing this not to further their artistic career oh they're paying off their mortgage in Malibu sure well, I think Cassavetes might be a bit bored with his sort of what he normally does. So, you know, I was surprised to see him there. Yeah. Yeah. John Cassavetes obviously goes on to become a total um, inspiration for independent American cinema, but he got a best supporting Oscar nomination for this. Um, and he's great in it, right? He is really good. Mm. Um, he's very over the top, but so is everyone. I mean, basically, I mean, Aldrich said that um, he made the film in reference to Vietnam, that Americans do bad things too. And it's just like, okay, uh, that sounds very thin way of trying to get the left to come and see your movie, <laughs> which, is, uh, which is essentially ends on, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's okay, it's not up there with the Dresden bombing, but it's a Western war crime, none the least. I think that was the thing that kind of struck me. We've, we've, we, I mean, my fault, we've jumped a bit too far. Let's, let's talk about the main characters of the Dirty Dozen, apart from Lee Marvin, okay? So Lee Marvin is obviously the hard-boiled, um, rebellious major right. and, um, who doesn't take any shit, blah, 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 blah. But he's so good at his job. He's perfect for this mission. And if he gets killed, it's not that much of a loss to the brass. Mm. So he goes in to the stockade um, to get together a group of people to go behind enemy lines to basically kill a load of um, top brass Nazis. Who are a holiday, holiday camp for Nazis. And also their families. Mm. <laughs> right. Um, so we meet... Um, we meet John Cassavetti's character, who's who's a mobster supposedly, and he's in prison for murdering someone while stationed in the UK in a in a stick up. And I think uh, what, what did he make off with? A fiver, if that. So, yeah, like fuck all. Yeah. Um, we meet Maggot, played by Telly Savalas, which is this is this is nuts because Telly Savalas is already big by this point. I mean, what? And it feels like a very different. Who, as well. who was his fucking agent? It's just like, hey, Telly, have I got have I got a role for you? You're going to play a southern boy, psychotic, religious, tyrannical nutter who's also quite possibly a rapist and a mass murderer. I go, oh yeah, I'm in. Yeah, no worries. And he plays him a bit like Uncle Fester. Yeah, it's really weird. It's, it's, I mean, it's a weird kind of... Yeah, it's weird. But, I mean, if you look at some of the other stuff he's done, he has done a lot of weird movies. I mean, have you seen um, the Spaghetti Western he made, A Town Called Hell? 
Yes, yeah. With, with um, Robert Shaw as well. I mean, that is insane. I mean, that's like, it's like Sergio Leone sticking his head in a bucket of LSD and then knocking one out. the voiceover he did to promote Birmingham. Oh, mate, wonderful. Oh, I've forgotten about that. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I th- He's, he's, I mean, I've always thought he's a great actor and I think he's massively underrated. Um, so yeah, so we meet, so we meet Maggot, uh, we meet Jim Brown's character. All of a sudden we get this, um, racial conflict between deep South religious zealot and Jim Brown's character, um, which doesn't end well for Telly Savalis setting off like alarm bells everywhere. And so he decides to turn a machine gun on him. That's that's such a weird turn in the film, isn't it? When everything, well, well, the the, the turn, the turn, doesn't the turn start when Telly Savalis just plunges a knife or she seems to, it was so, so weirdly filmed. She seems to walk into it. Mm. And then basically you're watching a very, very different film. All of a sudden it's just like the X rated version of the movie you've just been watching, which was a bit like the great escape. But now it's fucking horrible. Yeah, yeah. And th- this is the thing. I mean, like, like I remember, like in the playground as a kid, the Dirty Dozen was like the archetype of playing war in the playground. And I, I hadn't obviously seen all of it, which is why that playground antics probably seemed really fucked up. We were we just kind of reenacting all this stuff in the. It's a, it's a weird thing to reenact in the playground when you think about it all these years later. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, we'll talk about another film in a, We'll talk about another film in a bit, which you know, you're dealing with um, some very, some very serious subject matter in certain parts of the film, but not for the majority of the film. So, so the juxtaposition is really jarring. Um, and it's weird because it's. It, 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 I mean, those, those films aren't will not be made no. anymore. I mean, this day and age, and I'm not talking about them being offensive. I mean, plenty of offensive movies are made, but it's just like, what, you know, which genre is this? You know, one, you know, as we were saying, one minute it's like a bit madcap humour, and then it's like, oh, they're going to burn all those people alive and then throw grenades down there. What the fuck? The, the other thing is, 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 is people often hold these films up as the, you know, like the great American spirit or the great British spirit. And it's like, they're fucking war crimes. <laughs> oh yeah. And actually what they are in reality is much more a commentary, a negative commentary, but people hold it up as a great thing. Yeah. We killed all those people. Yeah. Well, I think, I think it's great that it's seen as, um, as matinee entertainment. I mean, it's insane, but I think it's great that it's seen that way. Cause that's what it is. I mean, basically you're watching, um, a load of faceless Germans get, brutalized at the end and it's just like okay why am i enjoying this i don't know but i am i mean i love that film i love it I, as i said i watch it once a year i know it's bollocks but it's also great i was just reading there's a wonderful quote from um, roger ebert when he was reviewing the film talking mm. about war crimes and it says i'm glad the chicago police censor board forgot about that part of the local censorship law where it says films should not depict the burning of the human body and if you have to censor stick to censoring sex i say but leave in the mutilation Leave in the sadism, yeah. and by all means, leave in the human beings burning to death. It's not obscene as long as they burn to death with their clothes on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that's great. It's fine. So it's, it's absolutely a matinee film because everyone's dressed. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's okay. So, um, but I mean, again, um, we were talking earlier about like, the prostitutes all arriving, and it's just like, okay. All right, all right. You don't see anyone get noshed off or knocking one over him, but like, you know, excuse, 
excuse my excuse excuse my slang, but I mean it's very much obvious what's going to happen. And like kids watch that movie. I mean, I do remember though in the UK on video when video cassettes were first for sale instead of just rental. Um, MGM released a load of them. Kelly's Heroes being one of them. MGM UA Classics, part of United Artists. MGM and the Dirty Dozen, one of them. And Dirty Dozen was a fifteen. And it still very much should be. Any more on uh, Dirty Dozen, guys? We, we've not even mentioned the fact that Charles Bronson's in there. Oh, God. Right, come on. Let's go back to the actual Dirty Dozen then. Right, so you've got Charles Bronson. And why is he in the stockade, Matt? Uh, I can't remember why he's in the stockade, but I think he, he either killed an officer or assaulted an officer or something. He basically has a massive problem with anyone that's in a position of power. Um, yeah, he's got a massive problem with authority. He killed his commanding officer. That's it, yeah. Because he was going to run off and leave the rest of the platoon without medical supplies. Thanks for researching that one. Right. Donald Sutherland. Donald Sutherland. John. Well, that, it was, it, is this one of Donald Sutherland's first kind of gigs? He must be, by the way. Yeah, I mean, he'd done... Yeah, it was it, it was it was really it was really early. Um, but I mean, he I mean, he would have been a kind of a name in 67. But because um, it's it, it's it's weird. It was almost like <clears throat> when watching it, it was like a character from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest had got into the Dirty Dozen. Yeah. And that's kind of what yeah. it felt like. Yeah. And, and he, he plays it very well. Um I love the bit when he when he pretends to be the general, and I love the bit when he plays the major. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or the yeah, general. That's great. That's hysterical. <clears throat> it's almost like that, that. That was his training wheels version of being odd job in um, Kelly's Heroes. Yeah, I know. Then you know, then he does mash for fuck's sake, you know, and then he's huge. Okay, so who else do we have? We have we have Keir um, Dullier, um, star child of two thousand and one. Yeah, and Jim Brown. He's one of them. Jim Brown, we've mentioned Jim Brown. You've got you've got a really good performance by Richard. I can't never remember how to pronounce his name. If it's Jekyll or Jekyll, um, who plays the military policeman, who's a right sadistic bastard. But then also this sort of really benevolent uncle by the end of it as well. He's like he's completely yeah yeah. By, I mean by the end of it. Oh yeah 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 totally. But he loves his boys by the end. Yeah, of it. and it, he survives, right? He survives. Lee Marvin survives, and Charles Bronson survives. I don't think it. I don't think you can certificate that it would be uh, a spoiler alert. Being it was made in 1967, I don't can get away with telling what happens at the end. Um, uh, who else do we have? Trini Lopez. Trini Lopez, exactly. Right, so you got Trini Lopez. And then you also have, oh, God, what's his name? Stuart Cooper? Have we mentioned him? We haven't mentioned him, but... No. Because there's two guys. There are, there are two guys in it. Clint the, Walker is posing. Oh, he's brilliant. Right. But he's amazing. So he's, he's in there because he got in. Mm. He doesn't like to be pushed. And um, he got pushed and decided to punch someone and their nose went in their brain. Um, so he's this kind of bizarre, gentle giant, <laughs> tough guy. Yeah. Um, but you know, what, what, what good becomes of what, I mean, I suppose my real question is what's the fucking point of this film? I still don't really know. Is it, I mean, what's the moral of it that all authority is shit or this is what happens when you do, when you t- do what you're told you should do what you're told because it seems to be all three. Well, it's a little bit of, oh, yeah, it is a little bit of all three, isn't it? Because it's like you can, if you do what you're told in the right way, 
which is a little bit woo and a little bit way and a little bit crazy against the military. And you can sort of see Ernest Borgnine's character as the um, colonel. He likes that. He loves it. He loves it. It's a bit crazy and it's a bit mad and that bit where... The bit where oh yeah, yeah, he's cracking exactly, up during he the training exercise, and he just that it flies a little bit under the radar, and it's it's just crazy enough it might work, and that's all acceptable. Yeah. But ultimately, everyone that does it and and gains some sort of redemption in their war crime and taking part in that war crime dies, apart from Charles Bronson, who notably doesn't really kill anyone. Well, he does pour a lot of gasoline. And throw a load of bags of hand grenades down on people. I mean, there is that if you want to be picking. But I mean, it's safe to say that although he might not be, but they they are closed. So they are closed. Jim, it's Jim Brown who sets them off, and he gets killed. Okay. Well, anything else on the dirty dozen? I think the the moral of the story is America don't really plan things very well, and it kind of goes a bit tits up. <laughs> can I can I end with one bit of dirty dozen trivia oh, yeah. that you might know? And Rance, I suspect you're the only one to know this, but of all the characters, so Ernest Borgnine and Lee Marvin reprised their roles in the follow-up film that apparently I've seen a billion times but have no recollection of. But which actor from the original Dirty Dozen play ends up playing two characters in two separate Dirty Dozen films? Tony Savalas. Yeah. Because um, there are, th- I think there are three sequels. Yeah, three sequels, yeah. You got Dirty Dozen, Dirty Dozen Next Mission, Dirty Dozen Deadly Mission. In Deadly Mission, I think he is the leader. Am yeah, I right? You are major right. Major right. All right. Well, I thought that was interesting. Well, it is interesting. Keep keep it coming. Our, our uh, award-winning researcher, right? <laughs> Interestingly, Eric Estrada as well is in that one. Poncho, really? Poncho, what's his face from Chips? Oh wow! And there was a short-lived TV series. Hmm. Didn't know that. Well, Dirty Dozen Next Mission is a TV movie, definitely. Right. I mean, why wasn't there? Why wasn't there like a seven a.m. cartoon made of it? Really, it makes sense, doesn't it? There was a RoboCop. The surviving cast members of the original film provided the voices of the toy soldiers uh-huh. and Joe Dante's war soldiers. There you go. Yeah, 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 that's right. So that would have been um, Borgnine, Jekyll, Lee Marvin. Charles Bronson doesn't know, does he? Don't think so. All right. Okay, we're going to move on to a film made in 1978, directed by Andrew V. McLaglen, who uh, was basically best known for making um, John Wayne um, vehicles. He also made Dirty Dozen Next Mission. What a segue. It's like you have resources. He also made North Sea Hijack. Have you ever seen that with Roger Moore? Oh, yeah, yeah. God, yeah. And uh, my favourite named film of all time starring John Wayne, he made Chisholm. <laughs> Why is that? <sighs> so well, the film we're talking about is The Wild Geese. Um, starring Richard Burton, Richard Harris, Roger Moore and Hardy Kruger, to name but a few. Um, The two main leads, Burton and Harris, they obviously jump straight into this film, um, this adaptation of a book by the Rhodesian Daniel Carney from a screenplay uh, by Reginald Rose, who wrote 12 Angry Men. So he had a bit of highbrow power behind him and he decided to come up with the screenplay for The Wild Geese. So, yeah, Burton and Harris, you can imagine, just freshly 
from uh, treading the boards at the RSC. Uh, <laughs> definitely fancy a couple of weeks in South Africa. Dis- decide to plot off to apartheid South Africa to make a film. And um, what a glorious, appalling film it is. Um, it's, it's the strange, strangest episode of Dad's Army I ever seen. Yeah, that's brilliant. I mean, that's, that's, uh, it's definitely the most violent. Um, it's, uh, it's such a, again, it's another really, really weird film. I mean, it's weirder than The Dirty Dozen because it just, I mean, as a kid, I really loved it and I'd watch it a lot. But recently, going back to it, and I haven't watched it in years. I watched it the other day. I just, for the majority of the time, all I did was feel very uncomfortable. Well, it, it, it's it's a kind of a history that you don't often think about. And it's it, it's it's interesting the way it's kind of framed as this kind of going in and rescuing and so forth. Mm-hmm. Dirty Dozen and and this, the Wild Geese, are very much based on on reality to a degree and then and real life characters and and it feels like so the sort of war crime element of both of these is in some ways more sickening because there is an element of truth behind it right rather than where eagles dare and uh, okay dark of the sun perhaps well we'll talk we'll talk about those two films in a bit it's it's. I mean, the reason the reason I the reason I found it strange. I mean, there's parts of it I think are great, right? I really really like the fact that the real baddies of the whole situation are basically the Mayfair set. I mean, it's it's basically um, Goldsmith and all those cronies in some fucking gentleman's club setting setting up a coup in the third world i mean it's fucking outrageous and then getting in a group of mercenaries i mean burton walks in and who they then shot sorry who they then shot yeah no exactly yeah so then we know well that's it then you know who the real baddies are right because it's just like i mean burton's an utter bastard and he you can tell it's just like i mean he he obviously didn't enjoy making that film he said it himself i'm paraphrasing but he said it was shit <laughs> um if I if I if I could get out of it and get back with Liz Taylor, I would do in a heartbeat. Paraphrasing again, but something along those lines. Richard Harris, you can see Richard Harris didn't comment, but I, I imagine I imagine the two of them just spent the shoot pissed. And um, but you can see there's a bit when Burton has arrived at an airport and he looks shabby as fuck, and it's it's supposed to be because he's been on a long long flight. But he just looks like he's just falling. Yeah. Out well, it, and have you know, have you noticed the way he runs all the time? I probably have. He runs in this really kind of like. Well, I mean, he's an old geezer by that. Well, he's. I mean, he's not. He's not old, but I mean, he was. He was. I mean, he's seventy-eight, so he ain't a young man. Do you know what I mean? He's not. He's. You know. He's. He's. He's way past under milk wood. Uh, he's like. He's he's drank his body weight in booze five times over. He's probably got crystallized alcohol in his fucking liver. I'm surprised he can walk. Um, There's a lovely line from there where he talks to um, Matheson. He says, oh, I'm dry when I work. Yeah. After necking like three scotches in a row. And then you cut to the bit where they're at training camp and there he is lashing the lavas back. And I'm like, well, hang on. What, yeah, yeah. what does your definition of dry mean? Yeah, but lager, lager to a real boozer is just a refreshing soda. That's true. But, I mean, that's just a, that's just a pleasant Pepsi in the sun, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Um, I loved um, 
I loved the awfulness of the situation when he goes around to see his mate who he hasn't seen in, what, 12 years, is it? Mm. Since their last mercenary adventure or whatever it was. And um, it's just like, well, no, I, you know, I've got my son and we're going skiing. I promised him and all that. And he's talking to Richard Harris. It's just like, no, nah, you're not. And you're probably not going to die as well. Do you know what I mean? And Richard Burton doesn't give a toss. Do you know what I mean? He is, he just uses everyone around him. He's a total scumbag. But again, he has the redemption at the end of it of a meal. There's that, that sort of, he is redeemed through Harris's son at the end of it. Yeah, although, yes, very, I mean, it's, I mean, very twisted though. I mean, come on. I mean, that's like very, and it's very easy. And it's like, really? He comes around to believing in Nimbani um, and he sort of, in the same way as Hardy Kruger's character is sort of converted from being the massive racist into, uh, actually, I believe in this dude. Talking about the sun, the, the, that scene where, where Harris turns up with the Christmas presents and the son goes, all oh, the boys are calling mummy a whore. And then I looked it up and I was sad. <laughs> I, was, I was pissing myself. <laughs> It was the strangest, it was the strangest scene in the middle. It's like this this sort of heartfelt thing. It was like, yes, and it, it went into kind of almost ripping yarns kind of territory when he came out with that. Yeah, no, it really no, no, totally like ripping yarns. And also, you know, it's like when's the bear coming out to fight the bear? You know, and it's like with with that bit as well. It's just like. Oi, Harris, if you loved him that much, he wouldn't be in a fucking boarding school, would he? Do you know what I mean? I love him dearly, but I don't want to see him more than three weeks of the year. <laughs> yeah, because he needs to get his lash on. <laughs> the other bit when Burton kind of gets, like, he says, uh, my fees are 100,000 and the, and the rest of the men 3,000 each. <laughs> oh, yeah, Social, socialism in action. <laughs> yeah. And all these men are like going, oh, yeah, great, three grand. And he's sitting there. <laughs> just... Yeah. I'm going to leave my for three grand. And so then we go to um, another one of the main characters, um, played by Roger Moore. And we meet him. He's in hiding. <laughs> and, and Richard Burton describing this is like, you must know who he is. He's really good looking. <laughs> Working for the mob. Oh yes, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. And when he makes that geezer eat all the oh, all that chang heroin or coke, uh, it's all. Ch- I, I, oh my god! That, that's did, did you know who the the, the guy that that's Alan Ladd's son, isn't it? Oh, the is it head of Fox? Is it really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so yeah. Alan Ladd was head of Fox when obviously he greenlighted Star Wars. Yeah, that's his son, is it? Yeah, yeah. Wow. And it, it reminded I bet he was it, proud. It reminded, <laughs> it reminded me of. Uh, do you remember that scene in V where they put all the red powder on the, one of the aliens to choke them or something? At the no, end? I can't remember. I, I mean, I was. I, uh, it was very similar to that. Yeah, it, it was just a bit OTT. Like, <laughs> is he choking on it or is he overdosing? I'm not sure. Well, I mean, he was. He's probably. I mean, if he's if it's heroin, he's having he's having a very nasty blood poisoning and a heart attack. If it's cocaine, he should be dancing around a fucking room prior to having a heart attack. <laughs> you know, I did, so I'm not sure what it was. I think it's the snack. It's got to be. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty grim when he's force-fed um, what appears to be like three kilos of H. Oh, that's horrible, man. He's very thought- thoughtfully put it all in one bag, though. And then he, he classically allows his missus to get the shit kicked out of her. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 
give her a kiss. Oh, and then yeah. Doesn't she say when he leaves? Because I think he's like, isn't he a love? <laughs> The, the 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 way she talks because there was something really weird in the in the sort of first twenty minutes. Almost every character talked directly to the camera. Mm. Like the 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 eye, the eye lines of people are all off. So when she did it, I was like, it was like watching an episode of Garth Marenghi. That's very yeah. That's very. Uh, that's, She's even a little bit boss eyed when she says it. The weird thing is, I mean, this is I mean, this is made by a veteran director, right? And the budget wouldn't the budget wouldn't have been small with that cast, but it feels cheap as fuck. Well, I think they spunk the budget on the cast, didn't they? I mean, well, on fucking getting, getting Burton, on, Bur- on Burns Rider. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's an early appearance from Valerie Leon as well, who was a Carry On girl. I think she's in Carry On Camping and several other things, and quite a lot of Hammer Hammer right. Horror She's one okay. of the. Uh, um, croupiers in the, the bit when they go looking for Roger North, you know, so which I hadn't, okay. hadn't realised before, and I think it took me years to work out who she was. Okay, so then um, they okay. I mean, let's let's cut a long story short. Then they get hardline racists um, Hardy Kruger in, um, celebrated German actor, really great actor actually. I think um, he's got a real intensity because you can tell but Burton's on autopilot right so you can't say I mean he is a he's such a wonderful actor but he's not in this I mean let's not beat around the bush Roger Moore's actually pretty good in it by his you know by his benchmark by his standards yeah, yeah. You know. there's barely any clips out of him although there are still some oh there's a, there's a couple you know but I mean he's when it when when he's on when he's on the screen um that's when the film's most watchable I think his character's just, he's just a bit more likeable. His best, you know? his best and, acting is when he tightens the uh, tourniquet on his leg as he's flying and his face is... It smarts a bit. And yeah. I, oh, I've been shot the leg. Oh, oh, when he, and, when he, and when he lands a plane, he goes, whew. <laughs> <laughs> what a touch. Um but I find I find watching Richard Harrison it's too, I mean it's because I know it's because I knew the ending do you know what I mean it's just like it's too tragic it's far too tragic you know your son that you love do you know what I mean he's lost his mum because she's because she's a whore you don't love him that much he's in a boarding school um, but you know you're gonna you're gonna die here and you're you seem to be the only one out of all these bastards although you're still a bastard who seems to have any kind of belief in social justice Although that kind of changes when he walks into the sleeping quarters and cyanides the fucking lot of them while they're asleep. That's one of the most vicious parts. Yeah, yeah. That is horrible, man. Well, you were trying. You were asking me to find the death counts for all these films beforehand. And I was, yeah, I don't think I could do it. Well, a, I can't do it because I didn't have time. But b, I mean, how many people? I mean, that's what you want to hear. That's what you want to hear from your chief researcher, isn't it? Well, I just didn't have the time, and it's like, oh right, okay, because it's all on fucking line, Matt. Do you know what I mean? That's how you, that's how researchers do their job. Is isn't it? it? Is it? Yeah. So when you ask me, <laughs> when you ask me five minutes before this studio starts, just find out how many, <laughs> in four two and a half hour films that were made in the seventies that no one fucking yep. remembers. Yeah. Please. I'm not, I wasn't going to ask you to watch the fucking films. <laughs> was I? I mean, I've got Google just as much as you have. Yeah, well, you know, what do you want? I've got two. I've yeah, got but, two but kids. Ra- Ranks is bed. getting a hundred grand. You're getting free. Mate. <laughs> <Right? laughs> 
Come on, join the mission. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Um, oh, well, I, I love it. I love it at the end when 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 uh, Harris is saying to Burton, "Just kill me, just kill me," and he's like, "Not that," and he does it in the most histrionic kind yeah. of, "Not that," not, and he, he's bashing the plane, and it was just like, yeah. He's just like, get me out of here. Get me out of here now. But then it all, t- it all turns out to be for nothing as well, because then Barney dies, doesn't he? And then... Yeah. And so everything they've done, everything that's happened, all almost all 50 of the squad that they took out there, Jock dies. Uh, oh, Jock, Jock looks like my granddad. It's bizarre. Arthur, you know, Witty the medic dies. Oh, what the hell, man? We've got... We can't, we can't skip over that. I mean, seriously. Come on, my lovelies. What is that about? Oh God, I, I, that is so weird. It's just like okay, let's let's. It's just like we, I mean, is it done for? What, what's the point of it? Is it done for laughs? I mean, I would have laughed about it when I was nine for sure. This guy is mincing around. It's like, but what's the point of his character? It's just like, oh no, you go and have a good time, loves. And it's just like, right, okay, so like a stereotypical queen. In the combat zone, that's fair enough. I'm sure that happens. I'm not saying it doesn't. But what's the point of it? He doesn't do anything apart from mince about and then get killed. I mean, he's got, he's, he has nothing, he has no character at all. It's strange, isn't it? He's there for sort of a, a comic turn and, oh, yeah, I can't I mean, is that, comic, is that comic relief even in 1978? I think it was meant to be because it's like, oh, have I got time? In, 19, in 1968, I imagine that would have been piss funny. But in 1978, you're talking about, you know, remember the time we're talking about. Admittedly, we were two, but, like, this was disco. Do you know what I mean? Shit was happening. In 2020, people still make those sort of gags. Have you not seen David Williams? Oh, that's a very good point. Yeah. All right, fair enough. But it's that comic relief in inverted commas of, oh, can I have got time to get divorced? Oh, I can't wait to tell him. It just felt, um, again, I mean, it just, it, it just felt out. I mean, there's so much in there. I don't know. I don't know why I'm complaining. There's so much in the film that's out of place. It's unbelievable. I mean, that's, that's the bit that's wrong. Yeah. That's the bit that's wrong. In that no, no, the bit, the bit that's really wrong for me is the opening theme by Amnesty International champion, Joan Armour Trading. <laughs> I mean, what the fuck was she thinking? I mean, what do you think she felt after like, um, watching the cyanide gas gassing in the in the tent of all the sleeping young soldiers, you know. Well, she, when the geezer sits up with a big smile yeah, and goes, <laughs> I mean, they might as well have done. They might as well have done the dirty dozen boring. Then, do you know what I mean? Oh God! So there's an apocryphal tale of when um, a, a Aphex twin was asked to remix something for someone, and he, I think he sort of woke up the morning it was due in and realised he'd done absolutely fuck all with it. So he sent either it's either a recording of some um, sandpaper being recorded, or um, just some random shit he'd made up, and basically said, "There you go, that's a massive remix of this modern rock band song." It's almost like Joan Emma Trading did that in the seventies because I think she was just like, "Oh fuck, I've got to record this song for it." It's not that. It's not that. It's not the fact that she might have left it to the last fucking minute. It's the fact that she put her name to that film. That was that was filmed in South Africa during apartheid. I mean, fucking come on, what's that about? Someone who's a champion of Amnesty International. I mean, that's like 
she must have been lied to because I don't believe she would have gone like. Did she think she was doing the Bond scene? Yeah, maybe, maybe because it feels because like it, doesn't it? It sounds a bit like yeah, a Bond it scene. Does, yeah. Well, she probably had it knocking about from a ship. Oh yeah, they just showed a picture of Roger Moore. He's in it. Oh yeah, brilliant. Yeah, this yeah. Is... and they were, it, it's going to be Bond with genocide. <laughs> I just spat beer over my tablet. So she, she, she knocked it off, you know. That explains it all, John. John, it might not be true, but from now on, it's our truth. I like it. Because, I mean, th- th- they had a big budget for this. I didn't realize, I was just looking, 11.6 million. Fuck yeah. Do you know what the box office was? 1.4. No, but only in the US. So in, it's, it's got a very interesting um, distribution, right? The US distributor went bankrupt prior to it being released. So it only saw like a, it saw a select release in the States, which is obviously it probably would have cleaned up in, but in the rest of the world, it was a massive hit, huge hit, hard to believe. Yeah. Cause you wouldn't, you wouldn't have thought a celebration of kind of Brits in, yeah, doing war crimes was, was something to celebrate. In the rest well, there you go. I mean, clearly it's just like, you know, it's our greatest hour. Um, so yeah. Um, a, a, a troublesome, a troublesome feature. <laughs> Should we move on to a much more troublesome one? Yeah, look, the one I, I think, I think the next one's a bit lighter. Really? Isn't it? What, what dark of the sun? The lightest of all. <laughs> dark of the sun made one year after the Dirty Dozen in 1968, um, based on the book by Wilbur Smith, directed by Jack Cardiff. Great Yarmouth's favourite son, famed cinematographer for um, Powell and Pressburger. He also directed D.H. Lawrence's Sons and Lovers, which was a commercial critical success, received seven Oscar nominations. Also made Girl on a Motorcycle, the Marion Faithful thing. I won't call it a movie. But yeah, Jack, Jack Cardiff from Yarmouth. Oh, just to say quickly, because our, the fact that I'm celebrating Yarmouth will make no sense at all. The three of us are from Norfolk. Um, yeah, that's where we met. Explains so much. What explains even more is that none of us fucking live there anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, you, if you've ever been to Yarmouth, you'll know why. I recent I recently visited Yarmouth. My dad had an art studio there, and I I was kind of I started off in that kind of like, hey, it's amazing being back here, especially when the rain was pouring down. It was cold. It's just like, yeah, you know the the. The British seaside, by the end of the day, I was like, fuck, no wonder everyone's on smack. Where's the smack? Get me some smack. If you've ever been, if you've ever been to the Pleasure Beach in Yarmouth, oh. you'll get a rough idea of where the train scene in this film comes from. <laughs> <laughs> do, you remember, do, you, do you remember our day out when we went on the, on the, on the roller coaster? Yeah, the roller coaster is still there, and it still has to be pushed to start off. The last time I went to Yarmouth with, with you, Ransom, we were doing our charity walk, and the only reason we went there was so we could walk away from it really fucking quickly. <laughs> <laughs> but no, we should, I think I think um, uh, when we're all back together in uh, God's chosen county, as it's officially known, um, I think we should have a day out in Yarmouth. We'll recreate Dark of the Sun. We should have a day out in Yarmouth and record uh, a grand a grand bags funeral episode there. Hello, anyone? <laughs> We'll go down the pleasure beach, and you'll you know you'll be knocked back by all the screams of pleasure. <laughs> we'll re- recreate Wally World. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So, Dark of the Sun, and this has the same cinematographer as 
as Dirty Dozen. Ah, does it? Okay. Yeah, Edward, Edward Scaife. Yeah. Okay. And also shares an, shares an actor. Yeah, with, and Jim Brown. And Jim Brown with um, Dirty Dozen. Oh, uh, yeah, of course he does. And they're fighting Simbas again, like they did in the Wild Geeks. Um, but this time... I, th- I think it's much, much, uh, much, much nastier because it's dealing with... Well, it's sim- the simple thing is it's dealing with civilians. And as soon as you deal with civilians... I mean, it's a weird thing, isn't it? You can, you can watch a World War II movie, as you do, on Christmas Day at 11 o'clock, and watch 150 people get murdered by bullets. But because they're in an army uniform, you don't think about their family. You don't think about where they were born, their friends. You, you, you've... It, it, it's like whatever you know it's it's collateral damage as entertainment as appalling as that sounds that's exactly what it is right no for sure and it but, but it, would, it would be difficult to sit there and start thinking about all those backstories but i mean you'd be there i mean you'd be there 19 hours at least only austin powers truly considers it no no but i mean it's, it's a, you know this is, this is a very good point as soon as you put civilians in peril it's much, much more disturbing because you know that you're talking about families, you're talking about lovers. And the darker the sun, to me, I mean, it disturbed me so much as a kid, I couldn't quite believe it. But I saw it over about three sittings because Matt's dad videoed it. Matt didn't remember this until I reminded him, although he still doesn't remember it. So Matt's dad videoed this, and we went round, and he's just like, oh, he's got, a war, he's got a war movie, brilliant. You know, we could change it up between the other six films we've been watching. The other six war movies. <laughs> so we watched it, and it was, it was, I remember it, like, being, blimey, this is, you know, it's a bit... It's a bit hardcore, but because it's still, because it's made in the late 60s, because it's got that kind of bombastic war movie soundtrack, and, this, you know, this, just the similar vibe to those movies. It's an action-adventure film. That's how it feels. You know, that's how it's made. And then it's just like, well, what the fuck are you showing me that for? That's not an action-adventure film. It's suddenly gone from boy's own, you know, a boy's own Victor comic to... I'm never ever going to forget that for the rest of my life. Um, it takes a really nasty turn when the two kids get killed, really, doesn't it? I mean, it, it's obviously not nice before that. But. Man, it's, I mean, it's, just, it's, it's a, such a weird film. Yeah, so it's a film that disturbed me a lot as a kid. And as I said, I couldn't quite believe it. And I went back to it a couple of years ago because I saw it was on Prime and you had to pay for it. And I feel terrible because I did pay for it. And this might be my. The, you know, a masochistic side of me. And I sat down to watch it and it made me feel even worse. So when, when we were talking about these films, I, I didn't watch this one again. So I'm, you're going to be much more um, up to date on it than I am. Um, I will say one thing about it just to get the ball rolling. Then I want to hear you two natter on about it for as long as possible. Um, I think you can make films like Dark of the Sun you know, with extremely brutal and vicious violence, if it's made in a mature way, you know, especially when you're dealing with civilians, because you're dealing with a very, very dark subject matter, right? Mm. But I don't think you can make that type of film and turn it into an action adventure movie, because then it just becomes exploitation. And it's, it's able to, it's able to use exploitation with, 
while saying at the same time, yeah, but this is based on, you know, this is based on real shit, man. And it's just like, yeah, then make a real film about it. Don't make a fucking, an action adventure movie. But would you say this is, are you saying this is an action adventure? Because I think... Oh, it, it totally is. It's a mission movie, isn't it? It's a mission movie. This film... It starts out as that, but then uh, in some ways I think it feels like it goes swings from that and it's obviously criticised because at the heart of it much like um, I don't know Wild Geese there's sort, of, there's sort of money at the heart of this so they're off it's basically about retrieving diamonds they don't give a fuck about the people that they're going after sure uh, well that's, I mean that's what they're, that's what they're going after I think the, the characters within the film care about the people they're trying to rescue but ultimately the people that have sent him are just bring me that back yeah but that doesn't that doesn't answer what I'm saying what I'm saying is is that that it's still an action adventure movie it doesn't matter what they're going after they're going after something on a mission aren't they they're going on Hmm. and one and one of them one of the main characters is very much going because they're his people as far as he's concerned so you do have that you know you've got you've got the liberal you've got the cynic and they're going out there together and it's those two who are the partners, and you know they they are the main protagonists to start with. Rufo and Curry. So Rufo is Rufo the liberal. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Curry certainly isn't. No, but and the, and yet he feels like in some ways he's a liberal. The moment he lands in that country and feels like the only white guy defending Rufo from all of the journalists. Do you remember the journal, the scene where the three journalists are all sat there and they start having a go at Rufo? names and Curry's the only guy that stands up for Rufo because he's defending his mate Um, Mm -hmm. there's all that sort of quasi I don't want to have to fight you later on and I'm doing this for money not because I hate any particular race or anything like that I'm not saying I like Curry but there, there are things that are less shitty about him than lots of the other people so like he's the opposite of Henline the, um, yeah, the, the Nazi, the German, the German Nazi. That's the German Nazi. The Nazi that's basically hiding out there after the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, who's apparently based on a, a real life character. Um, what did Will Smith say that then? Um, no, he's, he's supposed to. I was reading this earlier on that Henline was based on. Um, Wait, is that in the book or the film? I haven't read the book because he has to. He ha- no, I mean I haven't. I haven't read any of Will Smith's books, and I'm, to be honest, I probably never will. But um, I imagine um, Siegfried Müller or Müller, uh, okay. who fought in Congo during the sixties, speaking um, yeah, a German mercenary. There you go. Fascinating. Right, John. <laughs> well, no, it, it's it's like you say. You know, you, you you're on this men on a mission but it's so brutal and it's it's got this kind of nihilistic drive through it that that neither condemns nor nor conflates you know and and it's it seems to be constantly morally ambiguous it's one moment you think like oh it's on uh, they're doing it for the right reasons and then they're not and it just goes back and forth back and forth whilst doing some really weird things with you like like pull, pulling certain strings it's like the the 
the scene where where all the townsfolk are in the the train and then it just rolls back to a basic massacre but but it it really seems to relish that rolling back and and you kind of allowing everyone to and people are falling out of the window and off the bridge and and so forth it, it it's I suppose there's so much of the film that has rubbernecking to it. Well, it's strange that some of those people fall out. They they fall out of the train and of off off the bridge. Yeah, not throwing themselves out because they know they're going back to certain death. They fall out, and that always seems slightly weird when you're watching it. What do you um, mean? Well, well, which which part do you mean? Because like, because when the explosion goes off, the explosion has obviously killed people inside, and they've fallen out of that. Oh, maybe, maybe I missed that bit as I was going through. Um, I mean, that's, that that bit is so fucking horrible. It's horrible, and it's like all those people screaming. You know, they're all going to fucking die, and it's just utterly miserable. I'm just like, oh, that feels that's great. I feel great now. Thank. But but it, but it but it isn't done. It isn't filmed in a way. You know, like like terrible things happen in Schindler's List, but yeah. it's done in a way. Yeah. That, that 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 gives it a gravitas. Yeah. This it's like just look at this. It's yeah. horrible. You can't look away. Yeah, and you and you, I'm not going to let you look away. And 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 then then it kind of goes into that when they're they're going into the camp and all, oh, all hell breaks hell. loose. It's like I, that's just kind of grind grindhouse exploitation. You know, people's faces going into yeah, fires. I mean, people that, being that, raped. That burning and, spear, which you sent me that, that image. You said like, this is where I am in the film at the moment. He just sent the clear freeze frame of like this geezer. Oh god, it's just awful. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's it's, it's really it's. I think it's a really nasty film. I really do. Um, pretty despicable film. If I'm completely honest, and. One, one, one of Scorsese and Tarantino's favourites. Well, Scorsese calls it a guilty pleasure. He knows it's appalling. Yeah. But he's um, he's talked about it in depth. I mean, Tarantino used the music at the beginning of Inglorious Bastards, and obviously, well, there's so there's so much. There's a lot of elements of Inglorious. Like, you, I mean, you start fusing all of these films together into Inglorious Bastards, but um, the Inglorious Bastards is based on. The title of that is based on an Italian yeah. translation of the. Well, no, but there, yeah. there was also another movie called Inglorious Bastards, wasn't there? Oh, sorry, yeah, that, that was the, the English version of that film that was based right, on. Right, okay, but, but but there there are de- there are definite bits in Inglorious Bastards where where, where where you 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 can see the synergy with Dark of the Sun, and I, could, I it's the problem I always have with Tarantino in that respect is you can just imagine him watching this kind of getting off on it yeah i know what you mean but at the same time i mean the, the reason i the reason i'll disagree with you is that um tarantino is never going to make a movie like that do you know what i mean he's never going to make a movie as cynically nasty as that he'll make a nasty film with some cynicism in it for sure but by the end of it, you're going to feel pretty upbeat. At the end of Dark of the Sun, I feel like I've been kicked in the bollocks. No, no, I, I think he, 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 he does a sort of smash and grab on exploitation films and then surrounds it with more... Totally. I mean, look, kind of don't, almost don't, don't get... Literate and theatrical. Don't get yeah. me wrong. I love exploitation films. I love them. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I love straight-to-video nasties. I mean, one of my favourite um, is like, like the James Shapiro, uh, James Glickenhouse um, Shapiro stuff. Love the exterminator, um, love that kind of stuff, but it's not pretending to be something it's not. 
Um, Darker the Sun is just like one minute, it's like, okay, as I said, boy's own adventure. Next minute, we're going to deal with some really heavy stuff here, and you have to you have to see this because this shit's happening in the world. But we're gonna we're then going to go back to this this subplot. I mean, it's just weird. It's weird, and I just think it's really nasty. It's a really nasty film. It's 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 tonally it has problems. You also don't give a fuck about any of them. You know, the weirdest part for me, well, not the weirdest, in a film full of weirdness is that when they rescue um, the woman, That's Claire, right. I think her name is, so she's just witnessed the night before her husband being murdered yeah. by Simbers. She gets on a train with a complete stranger. Yeah, she's in love. With Curry. He saves her from Henline. Two minutes later, I love you. You're the one for me. You're, you're a vicious bastard. You're the one for me, fatty. <laughs> Basically, yeah, but yeah. Not 24 hours later, she's like, oh, I'm really gutted you've just decided to hand yourself in and I love you. And somehow they probably found time to have a shame. Yeah, it's very, it's very strange. But, but, um, now if you're, if you're dealing with, um, the very, very serious situation that that woman has been in, okay, and she's witnessed that and that complete trauma, and they're and they're all in this hell on earth. In a very serious film, I could completely understand her falling in love with someone who has helped rescue her. Possibly, but the idea of falling in love with a saviour, I can, I can no, no, see no, no, it. But but, um, but 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 not not because of that. Just because of you know that the fact that love or caring has been shown in such a traumatic place where there seems to be no hope you know, in her, in her mindset, <laughs> you'd understand it, but not in this film. No way. Do you know what I mean? Cause it's not made that way. It's not made that way. It's made like, you know, this is what happens to the nice people in this film. They all get fucked. You know, they all die. All the nice people die. It's as simple as that. The doctor, even the nice alcoholic doctor. Who yeah. Manages to, yeah. He, he sacrifices he himself. Redeemed himself. He sacrifices but, yeah, himself. Gone. And like it, and compared to Curry, he's not even that bad. It's just like, he's just on the lash. And and Curry's completely exploited his addiction to get him on the mission anyway, and then gets him killed. And how strange is it to see um, Kenneth Moore yeah. in a sort of exceptionally straight, well, straight, straight role, I suppose, is one way of describing it. But for, gone from, you know, the, the bumbling doctor of a yeah. carry-on to a bumbling alcoholic doctor of this but he's good in it isn't he I mean he's uh, he's he's probably the most believable actor in it he's really good it's a shame it's a shame Sid James passed away really I reckon he'd have been good in this (laughs) he would have been in the wild geese as well no problem you can actually see Sid James playing Curry to be fair I mean even every time he kills somebody he just has a good laugh (laughs) (laughs) Patty Jakes pops up out of the jump. Yeah. Boom. <laughs> okay. Are we are we done with Darker the Sun, or is there more to talk about? The, the, the only thing I'd mention uh, again, connecting the films, is uh, Dark Dark of the Sun was inspired by Mad Mike Hoare, who was a mercenary in the Congo emergency, as well as the Wild Geese was was inspired by him, and he died this month. Oh, okay. 
bet he was pleasant. Are they nice mercenaries? You can't you can't be that nice if you're. What's that Benghazi film where they portray them all as all right? Yeah. What the fuck is that about? What the the, the Netflix movie? Yeah, with uh, John Krasinski. That's a merc- They're basically mercenaries, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, it's like, uh, what are you talking about? It's like, mercenaries kill people for money and, f- and fight wars they have no, you know, they, they have no belief system in at all for money. So there you go. Right, Darker Sun. So, so, Ma- <laughs> so Mad Mike <laughs> dies at 100, but more than 100 people died around him. Daily. <laughs> but yeah, bless him. He, he died oh, this week. Okay, well, rest in peace. Um, yeah, I don't think he is, is he? He's not resting in peace. No, <laughs> I doubt it. I doubt it. Not one, not one for the religions, but burning hell. Right. Okay. Um, uh, just quickly, well, was he like? Was he like Curry at the end, who um, reflects on the type of man he is? It's gone. It's gone by then. He's he's gone over there for money. He's left a load of people for dead. He didn't go back for him. He could have done. They had, they have, they have the ammo to go back for those people, and he didn't. He went for the diamonds. And but it's interesting that he kills. He reflects on who he is and turns himself in after all the stuff he's done. He kills the absolute bastard in his mind. Yeah. In a really brutal and vicious way, and sort of that strange fight where they're climbing up vines and falling down waterfalls and all sorts of shit. But by that shit. point, the film's lost, isn't it? It's just like, this is bollocks now. But that's, but that, that's the one thing that makes him think, oh, fuck, am I a bad yeah, yeah. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, anyone seen the doctor? <laughs> he's, just been, he's just been annihilated, anally raped, and then had his tongue cut out. But no, don't worry about him. Anyway, moving on. They should do a remake with Tom Cruise playing Curry. Be genius. He'd probably do all right, I see. He plays bastards very well, doesn't he? Let's be honest. Right, before we go on to the next film, um, just a quick word. Um, Tonight's show is sponsored by Skullsaw, which is a European premium head shaver. Skullsaw. Skullsaw, European premium head shaver from R&R Prodotti. Take the test. Be the best, never mind the rest. Skull saw. Skull saw for smooth finish. Don't replicate, never hesitate. Intimidate. Skull saw. Available from super exclusive stores. Vladimir Slaughterhouse, Vladivostok. Dimitri's Orphanage, Rostov on Don. Boris's Whorehouse and Waste Disposal, Donyex. Skull saw is not available in UK or Crimea, so you must buy these places. Don't replicate, never hesitate. Intimidate! Thank you very much, Skullsaw, and thank you for sponsoring this month's podcast. The next film is Where Eagles Dare, made in 1968, directed by Brian G. Hutton, produced by the great producer, Elliot Kastner. The screenplay and the book, written at the same time, um, was uh, is by Alistair McLean, and the incredible soundtrack is by Ron Goodwin. Matt, I'm going to start with you because um, this was this was how we would spend pretty much every other day. 
obviously it's a two and a half hour film so it would have to be over a few days but after school we'd go back to yours it'd either be Kelly's Heroes also directed by Brian G. Hutton and starring Clint Eastwood or Where Eagles Dare yeah I don't remember it Unbelievable. Unbelievable. <laughs> no, of course I do. Of course I do. How could I forget this? It's almost... Maybe I need to watch things about 900 times before I actually remember that. You fucking exist. did watch it 900 times. Well, this I do, yeah, of course. And that's why I remember this. But it, oh, I it, see. Oh, right, yeah. This enough. one and Kelly's... Um, they are effectively part of my my DNA, I think. And it's, it is... It's just a film that has, has stayed and stayed and stayed and stayed. And I hadn't watched it in probably four or five years, even though whenever you see it, it's on the telly and it was on I mean, at some point, I think it was probably on every Christmas mm-hmm. um, along with the great escape, but, and I've got it on DVD and it's sat there, but I just, you'd see it on telly and think, right, I must, I think I've texted you a hundred times going where Eagles dare is on. Yeah. And then they were actually sat down to watch it. But uh, for a film that sort of coined its own drinking game, Mm-hmm. Um, it's, yeah, it's just a, a perfect piece of cinema. The the moment the drum, the snare drum, kicks in at the start of it. Yeah, and I'd forgotten about it starting in the plane. And that oh, really? Of, that flash forward. That's really the, clever, isn't it? I think. For, for, I mean, it's a flashback, isn't it? Because they're or are they? No, they're, they're headed, are they? Is it a flashback from the end of the film? And then they jump right back to predate that, or are they? Oh, heading, no, 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 are no. they heading no, no, out no. there? No, no, they're they heading out there because because they're because they're all on there, and half those lot half those lot don't make it back. That's true. Yeah. So yeah. So it starts there, and going back to that room. Okay. So where Eagles there, mm-hmm. starring Richard Burton again, but this time ten years earlier, and although probably still on the lash, his voice is exceptional at this point. You know what I mean? That deep, gravelly, but fluid Welsh accent that he's got. Um, he just sounds amazing in it. Clint Eastwood probably is, would you say, his breakthrough movie? I think so. What had he done before this then? Well, he'd done, I mean, no, he'd, I mean, he'd done a hell of a lot, but like, this is, he'd done a hell of a lot, but he'd, he'd done spaghetti westerns, but this, so he'd made his name, He'd done the Sergio Leone movies. Um, in fact, 69 might have been the lot in Good, the Bad and the Ugly. So he was in the midst of them. So he's done Fistful of Dollars and he's done for a few dollars more. Um, so, yeah, he met uh, Eastwood and Burton, met each other. And bizarrely, because I can't imagine their politics, like, you know, sit comfortably together, hit it off massively. And they they wanted to find a film um, Elliot Kastner mm. got McLean to write him a screenplay. And obviously Alice McLean at that point was a very successful um, mystery suspense and action novelist. And so he wrote the novel at the same time as writing the screenplay. So like he could still be a normal writer, I guess. Um, it was originally called something really shite, Castle of Eagles. Sorry, Castle of Eagles. Right, and um, and he took the uh, the line from I think it's from Richard the Third, um, where Eagles Dare, which is a nice touch. 
Yeah, the world has grown so bad that wrens make prey where eagles dare not perch. Major Smith, Richard mm-hmm. Byrne, Lieutenant Schaefer, Clint Eastwood, and Mary. <laughs> now, let's, now, you've got to remember this is 1968. Mary Year, <clears throat> at that point, was a very well-known actress and an extremely well-known uh, theatrical actress. Uh, she became wife of Robert Shaw, actor and playwright. And sadly, she uh, she killed herself as well. Um, she was awful in some of these. She wasn't particularly great in this film. To be oh, clear. she's fucking great. We're talking about you, Philistine. She's amazing in it. Oh, it wouldn't. Well, you, you can't really help the you can't help some of the script. I mean, it wasn't written for women. Let's be honest. I think uh, the he- Heidi was better as a character and had better lines than Ingrid Pitt. Yeah. Ingrid Pitt. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Ingrid Pitt. A moment for Ingrid Pitt. Right, okay, and then back to the film. Um, so they go behind enemy lines to the Schloss Adler in Bavaria um, to rescue, supposedly, General Carnaby, who is, in fact, shot down um, in a, uh, a mosquito plane. Um, it is, in fact, the two-bit actor Cartwright Jones. Then it gets really confusing for about 25 minutes, and then it just turns back into a massive action film. So, John, I want to talk to you about this because I remember you talking to me about this. Like, <clears throat> that you hadn't seen it for a long time and you watched it. It's just like I, can't, I couldn't believe how convoluted it is. Yeah, I, I was just. I, I, it was. It was like every every twist, and then just just when I thought I'd kind of worked out what was going on, it was like aha, that wasn't really good. And I was doing this, and it, 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 it started becoming like like I was like, fuck, am I watching Scooby Doo? Because it was, it was <laughs> kept taking off the masks every five mm-hmm. minutes, and uh, I, I never, I, I don't remember it being that complicated. That said, I often, I often get where Eagles Dare mixed up with Moonraker because of the cable cars. Dear God, Matt, even I don't do that. It's a quite convoluted plot, and it feels it's, it's only as with all convoluted things, it's only at the end that it sort of becomes clear that. There's so much planning gone into all of this to unmask the hero. So that's where the I think the, the Scooby Doo bit comes in. In that the the hero, I know mean, you've got away with it if it weren't for these pesky kids. Yeah, I mean that's but that's very much like Alistair McLean was kind of famous for that too. He, I mean that, that that would be in that would be in loads of his novels. I mean um, I can't really. I mean, isn't that in um, the Guns of Navarone as well? Isn't there like a isn't there a isn't there a twist in that? That's a good film, man. That's a great movie. Um, I Station Zebra. I mean, he it was one of, it was one of his his tropes. He would like he'd be like, right, okay, now's the time. Spin the yarn. There's so much there's so much faith in everything going according to plan, isn't it? Because it's so convoluted. Mm. You've got to, it. It reaches back three or four years in that Smith. Has um, he's got a mate who's serving in the German army who's over in Italy and he's laying in bed having a kip and he gets woken up and he's like, yeah, she's an arrogant bastard and he's got two scars on his forearm. <laughs> <laughs> that took years to get into place to then... And, and you, you wouldn't get a film, like you'd never get a film this complicated now no. because 
they wouldn't trust an audience to go with it. Saying that, though, right? <clears throat> Saying that, because it's funny, that we, that I only just thought about because you talked about taking the mask off. The first Mission Impossible movie, right? It's just like how to complicate a really simplistic action movie. I mean, De Palma did it with Mission Impossible and probably made it the most interesting one just because it was just like, what the fuck's going on? You know, as opposed to just watching explosion after explosion. And what's great about Where Eagles Dare, I think, I mean, first of all, it's the director does an amazing job because it's all of the whole film's just about atmosphere. It's so dark all the way through, even in the snow scenes and everything. Oh, it's just, it's just wonderful. Everything, it's very creepy. Um, and the soundtrack, you know, is obviously one of the main stars of the film. Um, not just the bombastic, like, title sequence, but, like, the intrigue, espionage music that goes while he's creeping through the castle and they're taking people out. I just think, I just think it's wonderful. I love it so much. I love mm. the film. There's one thing I don't get, mm. and that... So th- this 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 film is uh, one of our mate Dez's favourite films. How oh, is it? Right, he used to go on about it all the time. Dez, yeah, yeah, he used to go on. Okay. How did he sit through this and understand it? Because I watched Pulp Fiction with him, and he asked me afterwards how John Travolta came back to life. <laughs> so how did he follow this? Yeah, no, that that's really interesting because um, this is much more confusing. But maybe he found the right amount of sense Amelia <laughs> to get through. which just opened up a certain part of his brain for where eagles dare only <laughs> <laughs> like trick 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 has his moments yeah, where eagles dare and, and that's why I was, I was i was a bit taken aback by how but but it is it's funny because it's like a knot right in the middle yeah and then it's actually I, maybe then when you get into all of the relief of the escape and so forth and the tension of the escape, it, you, you needed that knot in the middle to go, otherwise it would have dragged. Yeah, I think, I, th- I, think, I mean, it, it, def- it definitely, I mean, I love that whole sequence when they're sitting around at a table and you've got that roaring mm. fire, do you know what I mean? And it's just like, you, I mean, you can smell the fire, do you know what I mean? It's just like they're all there having their schnapps after dinner. It's mm. just brilliant. And you can see the sort of confusion and the gradual realisation on Eastwood's face as he sort of thinks, what the fuck is going on here? Hang on a minute. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I mean, Eastwood said when when he first saw the script, it was just like it's too many lines. Take my lines out because he, you know, he'd been doing spaghetti westerns. He doesn't say anything, and um, he says that the character will be better if he says less. And he's dead right. But what the weird thing is about that character, Schaefer? I mean, when you're a kid, he's the one. He's the one you want to play. He's the one you want to be. Um, and he's a, he, he's a mass murderer. I mean, he's just a non-stop psychotic mass murderer. So I, so I did. That's the one I did manage to find stats. On. Oh right, okay. And what were they? So apparently there are a hundred deaths in where he was dead, which seems low, I think, from what I remember. But of those a hundred, Schaefer is responsible for seventy-three. <laughs> 73. I'm now starting, I think, but I think some of those are shared because looking at the, what I've written down, Schaefer's 73, Smith 26. Okay. And but, Mary 12. So we're already over. So I think some of them, they're sort of joint, jointly attributed. But even so, you know, I mean, like Schaefer gets to stab people, he shoots people, he blows people up. And I mean, I mean, let's, let's not forget that, yeah, okay, so 1960. He is the assassin. Yeah, he is, yeah, he's a, well, he's a, he's a ranger, isn't he? They say towards the end he's an assassin as well, so. So, I mean, he's, he's, he's the one that always goes in with the silencer, the guy, the, you know, in the radio room, 
and yet he's the fucking idiot that stands on the floorboard. And I mean, there, I mean, there, I mean, there are so many holes in it. I mean, if you start picking holes in a film like that, you'd be here all day. I mean, to start with, when they all parachute in and they're surrounded by these like alpine mountains, you know, the whole the whole Teutonic era, they're there, and it's like snow everywhere, and it's deadly silent apart from the odd wisp of wind. And they go, and one of them turns around and goes, Major, over here. Yes, yeah, yeah, we're <laughs> it's just like, not only are you going to bring half the German army, you're going to cause a fucking avalanche. It's insane. <laughs> it's insane. And it's because Herod, um, the radio operator, is dead. Mm. So who kills, who's responsible? That's always a thing that I've never quite worked out, because obviously mm. Herod dies and Thomas, not Thomas. Um, Thomas and Christensen. And Thomas and Christensen are double agents. Yeah, they're the three double agents, yeah. aren't they? But so it's Herod and the other guy who's killed Jock. outside the the booth at Jock. Who? Which one of them? Who? Which one of the three? I don't know. Is responsible for that? So who kills? Who? We never find out. Who. I, I, I don't know. I don't know which one kills which. But I mean, Her- Herod is probably killed by Christensen, who says, "Major over here," mm. um, or is that Thomas? I can't remember. Donald Houston, isn't it? Yeah. Donald Houston's the actor. So who it's Barclay, Christensen, and Thomas. They're the three double agents, aren't they? Yeah. Anyway, John, more thoughts. One of one of the things that I particularly like about it is the uh the sound design when you're going around the castle and stuff. That the just the just the taps and so forth on the on the stone and that again. It really plays. It really plays with the silence and the noise and the scuffs and the the, the clicking of the guns and stuff, which you, you just don't get that anymore. Yeah, that, that sound of all the Germans when they're running across the courtyard as all the explosions start. And it's almost like they, yeah, they've got sort of wooden heels. And, you, and just and just the sound of the clattering magazines of the guns and the grenades and stuff. Yeah, yeah. it's that you know me, metal on echoey stone. I mean, it was shot inside the castle though, wasn't it? Mm. You say, mm-hmm. was it? I'm asking researcher. Yes, I'll say yes. Or can you look it up? <laughs> Fuck it, duck. Shot on location. I think it was. I think it. I think it was shot in the castle. Yeah, it was, it was filmed in Austria. Was it in the castle? Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's what it says. Okay. Good. Oh, good. It's cleared that up. Um, anything else on Where Eagles Dare? Oh, the cable car sequence. Fucking hell. What are we doing? So the cable car sequence, I mean, that's that to me is your first point of high concept cinema. That's just like, right, can you imagine a producer seeing that and going like, fuck, if we just made an hour and a half of this, we'll make millions. Well, it's just, yeah, it's a, well, it's a stunt. Sort of the only one major stunt in the whole film. Well, just just as, yeah. just as just as high concept, you know what I mean? It's just like put, put people in peril, a fight to the death. Let's just make movies like that. We'll get rid of all the story, and that's what happened. I mean, it took a while, but that's what the uh, that's what the eighties were about. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, which is like I said, Moon, Moonraker. Yeah, yeah. It's a classic use of tomato sauce as uh, blood in that bit when the um, stabs. That's really not with the um, ice pick when he when he stabs Christensen. That is it, Christensen. Thanks, so. That's really nasty. There's another moment in there where you get a sense of what um, Richard Burton's vinegar strokes face <laughs> looks like. Oh dear God! When he, jumps, he jumps up. He jumps over onto the other cable car and he sort of. He's 
our pickaxe stabs into the roof and you can see him sort of just pout his lips a little bit and his eyes narrow slightly and you think yeah I love the fact I love the fact as well that was my first yeah I'm sure it was I love the fact I love the fact as well that you've got this geezer who's like way more out of shape than Clint Eastwood and he's always in front of him running. He's always up the rope quicker. He has to help him in, do you know what I mean? Or Mary helps him in, do you know what I mean? Helps Clint Eastwood in. He's already he's already, he's already in there making himself a cup of tea. Yeah, and he's already had time to have a shag with Mary in a woodloft. And yeah. A hole is a hole is a hole. And he does make him, he does make Clint Eastwood's character Schaefer carry both the rucksacks once one of them's died. Oh, yeah. He's a young snow carrying double rucksacks full of those amazing explosives that they have. Yeah. Appar- apparently, uh, it was dubbed uh, by Burton and Eastwood as where doubles dare because they use so many stand ins. That's right. Yeah. For particularly, particularly Burton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what a laugh. What a film to make. I mean, okay, it's not exactly highbrow art after, you know, the career Burton's had. But I mean, it's such a powerful film still, and I think it's 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 so powerful because of you know the coming together of so many things. You remember we were talking about in the first episode, John? We were talking about Alien, right? And we were talking about the coming together of like like happy accidents mm. and um, skill sets, all sort of coming together at the same time. And Where Eagles Dead definitely feels like that. You've got Brian G. Hutton. You know, who's you know, he's a decent director, but I mean, he's I mean, he's he's no genius, you know, film director. Um, but you've got you've got the the two male leads are amazing, the two female leads are amazing, although criminally underused. I mean, you know, as we said, of its time. Yeah. All the guys who play um, the rest of the crew, they are criminally underused, but they are at least there. They are integral to the plot. Yeah, no, they are absolutely. Too. But also the the villain. The villain is brilliant, right? The Gestapo officer is amazing. Yes. Yeah. He is brilliant. And then you've got, I mean, it says, it's, uh, I'll probably get sued for saying it if anyone ever listens. Um, but, so you've got him, the Gestapo officer. Then you have the more liberal Nazis. <laughs> then, of course, you've got um, the nasty receptionist lady who gets her needles out. Who looks like she's a really nasty version of something from a lower low, and then she breaks out of there. That's a bit dark. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's... She went She went sort of full Laurence Olivier, didn't she? <laughs> <laughs> is, it, is it safe? <laughs> uh, okay, so listen, guys. Um, we've come to... That's, they're the four films we're going to talk about on um, matinee war crimes. Now, what, your, your overall picture of the films, your favourite film out of them all, John? I think I'm going to say Wild Geese. I think uh, it, it was a kind of dirty pleasure and there was, something, there was something that tickled me about it and there's something about seeing these actors kind of not in their prime but just doing a bit of a <laughs> kind of like, it felt like a, a weekend kind of weird shoot and... Mm. and for all, even though it's got all of these kind of faults, you know, it's it's deeply uh, uh, racist and homophobic and all of these horrible undertones. But then that actually seems to reflect and and filmed in and filmed in apartheid South Africa. <laughs> yes, but there's there's something about well, actually, mercenaries doing that is is that yeah, you yeah. know? Um, but I, I I think it's it, it's just it's just sort of like. Watching Burton not in his prime and uh, and uh, 
more sort of suave in it around. It's yeah, as I said, it's sort of James Bond meets Dad's Army. Right, okay, no, that's great. That's really that's a good take on it. Um, I don't think I'll ever watch it again, to be honest. Uh, I'm glad I watched it again. I watched it so many times as a kid. A while ago. Yeah. But um, I don't think I, I, I won't I won't be sitting my thirteen year old down. So you gotta watch this while well, I do with Where Eagles Dead. You know what I mean? And he walks out after twenty minutes because he's poured out his brains. Um, I'm not going to sit him down and watch The Wild Geese or Dark of the Sun. Matt, your favourite movie out of those? Four? Um, I think I'm going to have to go back to Where Eagles Dead just because. Yeah, I don't Dark of the Sun. That's the first time I've seen it. I never want to see that again. There is. It's not the first time you've well, seen it. It's the first time I remember seeing it. <laughs> Don't worry, Matt. You'll, for, you'll, you'll, you'll forget this this time as well. I'll have, I'll have forgot the recording of this before. On, on the, yeah, the next episode of Grand Bay Trino is just like, Matt goes like, oh, I've never done this before. It would be great. Um, yeah, it has to be where it goes there. Um, there. There is no way I want to go back to Dark of the Sun. Despite it, I think the interesting thing across all of these four films is this sort of slight feeling of redemption that comes across all of them for some people. People are trying to redeem themselves as characters. However shit they are as people, they sort of curry in Dark of the Sun, gradually tries to make himself better by handing himself in. Dirty Dozen's all about the redemption of murderers and and people come across rapists. Wild Geese is about going back and sort of fixing a mistake you made as well as everything else that comes with it. Wiggles Dare is probably the one that then stands out about that, but even that's about redeeming a British military mistake in a way, and that they've been in or penetrated by the Nazi spies. So there's, there's lots of nights all of these, which is quite interesting, which I hadn't really thought of before. But yeah, where Eagles Dare is the one, and it's, it's got okay, cool. fair enough. I think <clears throat> I would say where Eagles Dare as well. I love the film, I think it's probably in my top five favorite movies of all time. Um, uh, I do love the dirty dozen, but in a very different way, if that makes sense. I mean, I would say the dirty dozen is a guilty pleasure while where he was dare. I champion, um, from the top of the Alps. Dirty dozen stands out the most because it's not about the other three are about, the, about Brits imposing themselves somewhere. Um, it's always a sort of British lead character going to change things in those other foreign countries. Yes, which they've got they've got wrong. They've got it wrong. We can fix this, absolutely. Whereas Dirty Dozen Inc. We can fix this with brandy cigars and genocide. <laughs> the three main food groups. But um <laughs> But whereas Dirty Dozen is so you know, it's it's but even then that's the UK is a background and a training ground for American carnage. We look after all their mm. all their guilty mm-hmm. folk and they wander around our quiet back streets and then go off and kill some Nazis. Thank you very much for joining us on Grand Bag's Funeral. We'll be back next month where we'll be talking in depth about factory records. We have been Matt Riches. Goodbye. <laughs> Fucking hell, miserable bastard. John Harmon. See ya. <laughs> and I've been Simon Rance. Bye, potato!